Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to you if you're here for the first time. It's great to see some new faces here. My name is Troy. I'm the minister of our congregation here at 6.30. We invest in God's Word again as we think about this respectable sin and neglected virtues. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you don't leave us in the dark, but you speak to us, that you give us your Word, that you've acted in history, and that you show us your ways and your will. Father, please convict us of the truth of your word tonight. Help us to know uh, the sin that we need to repent of. But help us also to know the grace of our Lord Jesus that drives us to say no to sin and to put on the godliness, uh, the virtues that you would have us put on. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's maybe no greater saying or maxim out there than this that we all love a good whinge. Uh, at one point or another, in this circumstance or that, all of us love to indulge in a good old-fashioned whinge fest. It just seems ingrained in our human nature. Uh, and Aussies, in particular, we love to whinge. Uh, isn't that right? So we whinge about the coffee. The coffee is too hot, or the coffee is too cold. The coffee is too strong, or the coffee is too weak. Uh, don't whinge about the coffee. I don't know if anyone whinged just beforehand at the hub. Uh, that's not a good idea. The weather. The weather isn't that perfect mix of warm but not too hot, of refreshing but not too cold, uh, or it's sunny but not scorching. And if we're just 1% out of that, well, we whinge about it, don't we? And then there's traffic. Traffic. If there is but a single car or there's one red light that is slowing us down for just a few moments, we're in a rage, we're complaining about silly drivers, about dodgy roads, about poor city planning. Uh, I'm not immune to this, I'm sorry to say. There are things I love to whinge about. I love to whinge about the weather, and in particular, I love to whinge about the entirety of winter. <laughs> I just hate that feeling of being cold, even just a little bit cold. I prefer if it's just always warm enough that I can wear a T-shirt and shorts and just never get cold. Uh, so even though we have warm winters here in Sydney, compared to much of the world, I still whinge about it being slightly cold. I'll whinge about being sick. Man flu is a real thing for me. Uh, I'll whinge about computers and internet being slow. Uh, but my number one whinge, what is my number one whinge? Running out of milk. That is just... That's just devastating. You open the fridge, there's no milk. You have to eat something else other than the thing that you thought that you wanted to eat. That is something to whinge about. We all love a good whinge. And in fact, Aussies love whinging so much that they love to whinge about whinges. Uh, Aussies have invented this term here in Australia. I wonder if you know it. Whinging poms. Uh, it's not a very nice phrase. I don't encourage you to use it. Uh, towards anyone, but Aussies, they use this term, whinging pom, to describe an English person who whinges about everything, uh, the weather, the sport, whatever. And, but really, as you think about it, that term, whinging poms, it's really just another way to whinge about something that we don't like, whinges. And so uh, we've just invented yet another way to whinge. Now, we can all have a laugh at the ways that we might be fickle or silly uh, or whingy at times, but the reality is, as we look at the scriptures, that, that complaining, that grumbling, is one of those respectable sins that we just tolerate in our lives. We just often let it just run rampant, unchecked. We don't even think about it. And it's far more destructive than we might think at first. But we actually know this. We know. We know that grumbling can really uh, can, uh, turn a household sour. 
We know that it can make living together just painful. We know that grumbling can turn a workplace into a toxic environment, and so people want to quit. And we know grumbling can tear apart a church when there's division and tribalism and hurt. And we know grumbling gives us a window into our relationship with God and into our hearts and into our relationship with others. And so today, as we're thinking about this respectable sin of grumbling, of grumbling and discontentment, we need to challenge that sin, this sin that we just accept, but God does not accept. He hates all sin, including this one. So if you look at your outline there, you can see where we're headed tonight. There's going to be a lot more on the screens as well, and we're going to get into the scriptures together. Because the place, but the place that we need to start is, number one there on your outline, the seriousness of of grumbling. See, just how serious is grumbling? To see this, we're going to dip into the Old Testament because it's fair to say that the history of the Old Testament is the history of God's people grumbling. Grumbling and complaining and discontentment, that was the default setting for Israel. They just did that day in, day out. We saw it in our reading from the book of Numbers before. In fact, you could call the book of Numbers the book of uh, grumbling. Because that bit that we read is just, it's not the only time that grumbling happens in Israel's history. They grumble against Moses, their leader, they grumble against God all through their history. They just keep grumbling. And to show us this, we're going to look at three examples. If we just follow just part of the Old Testament story, and as we trace through it a little bit, we see God's people grumble at every step of the way. And we see how serious it is. So the first story, do you remember the Exodus? God sent Moses to save his people from the evil king Pharaoh, to, to save them from slavery out of Egypt, to lead them out of that harsh experience. He, he brought them to Mount Sinai where he revealed his glory and he gave them his good law. And on the way there, he performed all these signs and wonders and saved them with his mighty hand. He brought them through the Red Sea. He destroyed the Egyptians. And then they sang and they celebrated and they praised God. But what did they do in the very next moment? They grumbled. Have a look at Exodus chapter 15 on the screens. This is what it says. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed three days into the wilderness without finding water. The people grumbled to Moses. What are we going to drink? So just three days, three days after being miraculously saved, they grumble. But then it doesn't stop there. In the next chapter, they traveled on and they grumbled again. Look at Exodus chapter 16. It says the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, his brother, in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. It's a bit dramatic, isn't it? But then again, as they journeyed through the desert, Exodus 17, this is still part of the same story, by the way, they complained yet again. Have a look. It says, but the people thirsted there for water. They grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? See, despite saving them, despite God proving that he could, that he would always provide for them. They just kept grumbling. So from the beginning, they grumbled. But then in the next step, the next leg of their journey, they kept grumbling. 
This is the second story. Now, after they left Mount Sinai, where God had displayed his fearsome glory, where God had given them his good law, and as he was leading them to the promised land, what did they do? They grumbled. We saw it before in our reading in Numbers 11. You can turn back there if you want to. In Numbers 11, what happened? Well, despite God protecting them all along the way and meeting all their needs, they just kept grumbling. So do you remember, God gave them manna to eat. Every morning when the Jew settled, miraculously, God provided this manna, this strange food for them to eat. And every day, all they had to do, this is all they had to do, they had to walk out of their tent, gather it up, cook it and eat it. It was free food on their doorstep every single day, except for the Sabbath, where they collected the day before and they just had enough for two days. And it tasted like honey. And like pastry cooked with the finest oil. They had rich food in full abundance. But what did they say? Wasn't it better when we were slaves back in Egypt? Wasn't it better then? We had all these different foods back then. We had meat. Now all we have is this manna. Let's go back and be slaves again, they said. That's ludicrous, isn't it? Free food on their doorstep. Luscious food every day. But they grumble. But it didn't stop there because what happened is that they, when they reached the promised land, see, when this is our third story now, when they got to the very edge of the promised land, when they sent out scouts to see it, and God said, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to get rid of its inhabitants, and you're going to take possession of it, what did they do? They grumbled. The people in the land are too strong. We can't defeat them. God can't save us. We're going to die. So look at uh, Numbers chapter 14 on the screen. It says, Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt, back to slavery. See, after Moses had faithfully led them, after all God's provision and protection and salvation, they grumble over and over again. And these are just some examples of Israel's grumbling. There's many others. See, don't these stories just start to reveal something of our human nature? We can't stand in judgment over Israel. They reveal our human nature as well. We, we can grumble about what we don't have when right in front of us is everything that we need. Rich blessing from God. We can grumble even when we know the God who made everything, who runs the universe, and who's promised to provide what his people need to live for him. And they show us how serious it is to grumble. To grumble about our lives and our circumstances, to grumble to the air or to grumble against another person who's annoyed us, all of it is actually grumbling against God because he rules over all things. He gives us everything we have. You can see the seriousness of it in Exodus 16 on the screens. Moses says to Israel, He, God, has heard your complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we, Moses and Aaron? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Look at Numbers 17. To grumble is to despise God and not to trust him. 
The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me, despite all the signs I've performed among them? This respectable sin is serious. We saw just some examples of God's judgment on Israel because of grumbling. That's why Paul says in our reading that we saw before, do everything without grumbling and arguing. It's why Jesus says that on the day of judgment, we will have to give an account for every careless word that we speak. I hope you see that, that just accepting this sin is not an option. We have to deal with it. But what does it look like for us? What does this sin look like for us? We've seen Israel's grumbling. What does it look like for us in our lives to grumble? What do we complain about? What does the modern Christian grumble about today? I think this will help us to grasp this sin and to, to dig down into it a bit more. What are, we, what are the things we complain and whinge about? Well, first, we complain, we grumble about all the small details of life. We've seen that, haven't we? We grumble about the weather and our health and our commute and our technology and all our small annoyances. There's all manner of things that get us in a huff. We're part of the instant gratification generation. We hate waiting in lines. We hate dodgy service. We hate when our plans don't work out even just a little bit. We complain about all the small details of life, but then we can also complain about the big circumstances of life. We grumble about those. Think about work. How easy is it to grumble about work? Instead of being content and thankful that God has provided for us and he's given us an income, instead we air our frustration at all things work-related. We want more pay, more recognition, less stress, easier tasks, flexible hours, more achievement, less waste, faster progress, and we grumble about all of it. Or another big one is uh, people and relationships. When our friends or our family or our colleagues, they rub us the wrong way, and we vent our frustration, we grumble about the way they are, we grumble about the fact that we have to deal with them. Uh, if we're married, we, we can grumble about our spouse and criticize them. If we're not married, we can grumble about not being married and about not having that relationship. But the other big area of grumbling is church. We grumble in church life, don't we? We grumble when we don't feel people at church are meeting our needs or our wants. Uh, we can be discontent with how things are run at church. We can whinge about the programs. We can whinge about the music. Well, that would never happen here, would it? Because our team has done so well tonight. Uh, we whinge about the buildings. We, that might happen here. <laughs> or how long the service is. won't say any more about that one. Uh, or how easy is it, think about this, to grumble about our leaders in church, those who are over us in the Lord. Isn't it easy to grumble about your minister or some other leader in ministry? I won't get a show of hands on that one either. See, we have this endless opportunity to grumble in life circumstances, in church life, in all the small details of life, and we can be pretty good at it. What is it for you? What is that area of grumbling that just comes so easily to you that you just accept it in your life? See, all of this starts to expose the heart of grumbling. See, as we think about grumbling and we dig down to it, dig down into it even more, we start to see why we really grumble. We start to see the heart of grumbling. What causes it? Why do we do it? Why are we so good at it? What is the heart of grumbling? Well, we might say there's lots of different reasons we grumble, but what is its heart? It's discontentment. See, we grumble 
because we're discontent. We grumble because we are unsatisfied in some way or with the things God has not given us or given us. Because we feel that we don't have or we don't experience something good that we should. Or we feel the opposite. We feel like we've been dealt a bad hand and we, have things, we get things that we don't deserve. And so that discontentment inside, it breeds grumbling. We feel that disjunct inside, that discontentment, and then we give a voice to our discontentment and we grumble. Someone I read said it really helpfully. They said, they said grumbling is discontentment made audible. That internal discontentment, it overflows to external grumbling. So we grumble because we're discontent. But why are we discontent? Let's dig a bit deeper. What's behind that discontentment? I think at the end of the day, there's two big things that drive our discontentment. The first is we have a wrong picture of God. And the second thing is we have a wrong picture of ourselves. Often it's both. See, this is what drives and feeds our discontentment. We have a wrong picture of God. We have a wrong picture of what he's like and how he works and what we should expect him to do and be. See, there's all sorts of ways that our picture of God can be wrong. Here's some examples. Uh, sometimes our picture of God is wrong and we grumble about our suffering. We, we lose a job or we lose someone close to us or, or our health goes downhill. And those things are hard, yes, but then we wonder. We ask ourselves and doubt if God is really good. If he's good, why is he letting these things happen? Sometimes our picture of God is wrong and we grumble about what we lack, what we don't have. We look around at those around us and we're filled with envy and jealousy and coveting because we want what they have. Why is it, God, that I don't have that? Why are you not generous to me? See, sometimes our picture of God is wrong and we grumble because we might not feel loved by God. We feel like he doesn't care about us. We feel like he's not paying attention. He's not answering my prayers. We have this wrong picture of God and we doubt him. We don't trust him. And then we're discontent and we grumble. So we can have those wrong pictures of God, but we can also have wrong pictures of ourselves, puffed up picture of ourselves, a self-important view of ourselves. And that makes us discontent. Let's think about that. Sometimes our picture of ourselves is wrong and we grumble, about, uh, we grumble because we think we know better than God. Why is God doing this in my life? Why does, God let the world why, why does God let things happen in the world like this? We think we could do a better job of running the world. We could have better outcomes than the God of the universe. Sometimes our picture of God is wrong and we grumble because we feel entitled we feel we deserve better. We think we've worked hard or we've been godly in life and that God owes us something. Sometimes our picture of God, sometimes the picture of ourselves is wrong and we grumble because we think we're better than other people. We just want to be more important than them. Why did he get that promotion when I work harder? Why does she get good things in life and I always get hard things? See, these are the wrong pictures of God and the wrong pictures of ourselves that drive us to discontentment. So if our problem is that wrong picture of ourselves, of God, what is the opposite of that? What is the answer of our grumbling? Isn't it just, one, a right view of God, and two, a right view of ourselves? 
You see, what we need is for God to pick up this word and just whack us over the head with it a few times. What we need is the Scriptures to smash our false views of God and ourselves, and we need the Scriptures to give us a true and right picture of God and of ourselves. Phil said it in week one of our series. He said, how do we deal with our respectable sins? You fill yourself with the Word of God. That's our task right now. I kind of just want to barrage us with the, the Scriptures to get our view right, to smash those wrong views of ourselves, of God, uh, to give us contentment, not discontentment. Stop us from grumbling. So here's some examples. We need to get our picture of God right when it comes to suffering. See, we need Romans 8 to show us that God is always, always at work for our good, always at work for my ultimate and eternal good. So look at Romans 8 on the screen. Paul says, We know that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Paul loves to be wordy. But what he's saying is, in all these things, in all things that we experience, our sufferings included, God is at work to make us more and more like Jesus. That's his purpose in our suffering. It's hard. It's not easy. But he's working for my good. So we need to keep turning to trust him instead of grumbling. We need to get our picture of God right when it comes to God's generosity. When we feel like God is uh, holding out on us, we need words like Acts 17. We've seen this in our gospel teams as we look at the generosity project, haven't we? Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God is not holding out on you. He gives you every good thing that you have ever had. Down to your very life, down to your every breath that you breathe. And on top of that, he didn't even spare his own son for you, but sent him to die for you. See, we need to get our picture of God right when we feel like he's being distant or not answering our prayers. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 12. These are words we need to trust. He says, Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Nothing. Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Instead, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Such is God's care and attention to you. He knows every hair on your head. You are worth more to him than you can imagine. We need to get our view of God right. I mean, then we need to get our view of ourselves right. We need to get our view of ourselves right when we think we know better than God. There's more scriptures here, more scriptures to keep whacking us over the head. Uh, we need to be humbled by Job chapter 38. Do you know that chapter? Where God humbles Job. This is what he says. He says to Job, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? The answer? Not you. Only God. Do we really want to suggest that we creatures might know more than our creator? See, we need to get our view of ourselves right when we think that God owes us something. We need words like Romans 7. Paul says, For I know that nothing good lives in me, 
that is in my flesh. We need the words of the tax collector in the story Jesus told, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't deserve a thing from God, yet he is gracious to us. We need to get our view of ourselves right when we think we're better than others. Because Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. So what's the answer to our grumbling and discontentment? It's get your view of God right. It's get your view of yourself right. Because then what will happen? Because then, instead of this respectable sin of of grumbling, of discontentment, instead we will have the opposite virtues. Instead, we will be content. We'll be content in God's ways and the circumstances that he has placed us in. We'll be content in the generosity and the care that he constantly pours out on us if we would just have eyes to see it. And instead of grumbling, we'll see God's goodness and be thankful for every physical blessing and every spiritual blessing we have in Christ instead of grumbling. And we'll be humble towards others instead of grumbling about them or against them. That doesn't mean that it won't be a struggle. That doesn't mean that it won't be a battle to be content and not to grumble. It doesn't mean that we should be content with sin in ourselves or others. Uh, There's such thing as a godly discontentment with evil in our lives or in our world. It certainly doesn't mean that we can't, at times, share our burdens with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it doesn't mean that we can't bring our complaints and our struggles to God in humility and asking for his help. There's a difference between grumbling against God and crying out to him as your father who loves you. We'll have to spend more time on that another time because today we're thinking about the grumbling side of things. We can think about lament another time. But What it does mean is that as we deal with this sin, that we will search our hearts and will question our motives. Am I being discontent? What's behind this complaint or this grumble? And that's kind of the part, that's kind of like the start of what we need to do. With all this in mind, I kind of want to draw it together. Think about what do we need to do to put off the sin of grumbling and discontentment? What do we need to do to put on the contentment and humility and thankfulness that God desires? Let's finish with two final thoughts. The first thought is same, same, and we've already said it before. Part of dealing with this sin is doing what we do for any other sin. We use the Word of God, we use prayer, and we use fellowship. See, when you notice that you're grumbling, what do we do? We confess it to God and we, we seek joy in his forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We pray for strength to be content. We meet together and we ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and help us and pray for us and to keep us accountable. And we keep filling ourselves with God's word week by week, day by day, to get a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. And we keep applying those truths to our hearts. So instead of grumbling, we are thankful and content. But second, in particular for this sin, I think it's helpful to have a method to deal with grumbling when it comes up. Uh, when you feel like grumbling or you, feel, you notice you're about to grumble, what should you do? Well, first, you should stop. Stop yourself in that moment. Close your mouth. Turn off your voice and then pray, 
Lord, help me not to grumble. And then you start to question your grumble. That's what you do. Why am I feeling this way? What's behind it? How is my picture of God wrong here? How is my picture of myself wrong? What, what view or what truth of God or myself do I need to remember? And then you choose to be thankful. You choose to start thinking about and realize all the ways that God is working for your good in this situation. Or you look for the ways that he's being generous to you. And you notice the ways that you need to be humble and accept God's ways and plans. This is how you, you cultivate contentment and you practice being thankful. And if you do it, well, you'll disarm your grumbling. I'll give you an example uh, from my life. I said before that I often grumble about the entirety of winter. I complain about the cold, but I've realized this week that that's actually a problem. It's something I need to work on because when I grumble about the weather, I'm actually grumbling against God for the way that he has made and ordered the world and the way that he has decided the world to be today. See, when I'm tempted to grumble about the cold, what should I do instead? I should stop, I should pray, as I said, and then I should remember all the wonderful ways God has designed our world. I should remember how wonderful it is that, that God has made the world to turn just off its axis. And so when the angle of the sun hits the earth across the year, we get these four wonderful different seasons. We get this beautiful pattern of warm and cold, and each season brings relief from the other one and gives us a variety of experiences in life instead of just the same old weather every single day of the year. I should remember and be thankful as well that he's given me many things. He's given me clothes. He's given me a home to shield me from the weather. He's given me a warm bed to protect me from the cold. And then I need to remember that we live in a time where heating and aircon means that 90-something percent of the time I can be as comfortable as I want to be. Thank you, God. And I should remember we have it pretty good here in Sydney. Things don't get nearly as cold as other places. I don't, I don't know how I would live anywhere else in the world. I can also remember that it's not all about me. That God has all sorts of plans that he is working in the world and in my life, and he even uses the weather to achieve these things. His good purposes. All of this will disarm my grumbling, my discontentment. Instead, it will make me thankful and content for all God is doing and all he gives me. And I can do this for every single instance of grumbling. So can you. And if we do this, well then won't we stand out from the world of grumblers? Won't we stand out from the Aussies who love to whinge about everything and even love to whinge about whingers? That's the point that Paul makes in Philippians 2 that we read before. Let's finish with this. He says, do everything, everything, without grumbling to God, without arguing, grumbling with one another, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. See, grumbling and content, discontentment, it's our default. But if we cultivate thankfulness and contentment, if we disarm our grumbling, well, we'll be so different from the world around us, won't we? We will shine compared to our dark world. And this is what God has in store for us if we just put, the, put away this respectable sin and put on the neglected virtues he's called us to. Let's pray.
Our gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word, which penetrates our hearts, shows us our sin. We thank you that you show us your ways. We praise you that your word shows us that you give us everything that we need, that you provide for us, and that even through our struggles and suffering, as hard as they might be, we know you are working for good and for your glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to humbly repent of this sin, uh, to stop grumbling, to stop being discontent, but to continue to work at growing in contentment and thankfulness and humility. Father, we know, you know that we will struggle. You know that we will always battle with this. We ask that your spirit would work in us little by little, step by step, to make us more and more like Jesus, as you have promised to do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.